I've been praying that God would give me what he wanted me to say to you. I've been asking the Lord that he would help me break out of a thematic um, presentation and that the Lord would speak to people. And so I believe that I'm preaching to people who love the Lord. I believe I'm preaching to people who are discouraged and maybe it's been a long time since you've prayed. I believe I'm preaching to people who don't know the Lord. You're you're not familiar yet, but the Lord is reaching for you today. So whatever category you find yourself, just know that the word of the Lord is good for everyone and it's applicable to your life today. This is a monumental moment uh, in the history of America, but also in world history. And so we believe that God is going to take all of this chaos and all of this damage. And even though there's a lot of trouble in the world, he's going to use it for the kingdom's sake. Amen. Amen. Before I preach, I wonder if you'll just collect yourself for a moment. And I wonder if you would go through this little motion with me. Would you bow your head and would you close your eyes? And would you try to do your best to forget about everything else? And would you just pray with me? So right now, bow your head and close your eyes and just pray with me. Father, speak to my heart and speak to our lives, Lord. Do something in us, Lord, that's not only brand new, but life-changing. Let this moment change our entire existence. I pray today that eternities would be changed, that the destiny of thousands and thousands of people would be changed today. Wherever they were heading, Lord, whatever course that they were on, I pray, whatever course we were on, Lord, I pray, let it change also so that we are solely focused and centered on you. I pray today for all the people that struggle with these moments. And I pray today that your word would come alive to us, Lord. Let it minister grace unto the hearers. Let it be received with all readiness of mind. I pray that your Holy Spirit would invest itself inside every life, inside of every person that hears the word today and overshadow every home, every living room and kitchen and den and all the places where the people are gathering today. I pray right now, Lord, that even after this word is through, that this afternoon when people are gathering for dinner, that they would not soon forget the presence and the power that you have invested in them and I pray these prayers in Jesus name come on everybody just speak his name Jesus 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 come on say it say it Jesus 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 amen 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 thank you Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus Christ He's not well-known 
like Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip. But this disciple is a man that appears to be of some wealth. At the moment in which I speak, he is joined by Nicodemus, that Pharisee of John 3, who once invoked a midnight study with the Lord, the man he called Rabbi, a teacher come from God. Both of them now openly beg for the body of the Lord Jesus. They have traversed the boundary of self-preservation as they attend to the remains of Jesus Christ. Even still, the Gospel of John says that they came by night, and I quote, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. They will lay Jesus in a tomb. It was close to the place of his crucifixion. The night has now fallen and the tomb was convenient. It belonged to Joseph Arimathea, after all. Matthew writes of the body of the Lord that they wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his, Joseph's tomb, his own tomb, which he dug out, hewn out of a rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. The tomb was a gift for the Lord. By all accounts, even to the logical mind, Joseph of Arimathea gave it as a token to Jesus. It was never his intention. It was never the intention of Joseph to ever get the tomb back. The Jews would rarely move a dead body anyway, except in those cases in which bones were dug up to simply burn because they belonged to false prophets and the enemies of Israel. That happened. No, this tomb was a forever gift. And the body of the Lord was placed there as a permanent resting place by those two disciples, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. I've been to Israel several times. Each visit brings me to the place where they assume might have been the area of the Lord's crucifixion. All of the logistics point to this specific place. It couldn't have been far. In fact, it was probably not on a hill far away, though that is a great verse to an old hymn. No, not on a hill and certainly not far away. Instead, Rome crucified the enemies of the empire in public places at intersections where people traversed, where people could view the executions firsthand. Rome wanted to instill fear and terror in all those who might consider an uprising or some rebellion. So the Romans excelled in shock. Their massive pillars marked the entrance of Beit Shan and so many others. Cities and entranceways, a shock in all of Rome. Their columns and theaters amazes the masses as they pass by, all of which pressed hard against the paltry existence of the common man and the mundane life, so that no one would dare declare a coup against this empire. These public executions held the attention of the collective, both ghastly and shameful. Mothers might cover the eyes of their young children. Perhaps they would all turn away only to catch a glimpse of the horror that befell them. 
Isaiah prophesied as much when he said, we hid it as it were our faces for him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. When Joseph and Nicodemus took Jesus down from the cross, they made haste to prepare the Lord's body. Spices and fine linen, however, seemed minimal that day. The cloak of night could not conceal the tragedy that had unfolded before them. Jesus did not look like the same man they knew. They prepared Jesus for burial and then their final act was to place him in a tomb. The tomb, the tomb, was the last place. Once the stone was rolled into its position, there was nothing really anyone could ever do. The other disciples, the 11 that remained, they have all scattered now. They are nowhere to be found. Their hands never touch his lifeless frame. Perhaps they were afraid that they too might be arrested. So these two men, these two lesser known disciples, will wrestle the stone in its place. Though it was meant to roll, the weight of it was designed to be its own secure closure. And that is what tombs are meant for. They were closures. They marked the end of it all. The tomb was a finality given through reality. Everyone knew they had to come to face the fact that Jesus had lived and he had died. And that would be the end of it all. Even still, Joseph and Nicodemus did what they had to do. They prepared him. They were careful to do what... They had to do, they did the bidding of the deceased. And then at the end of it all, they laid his linen-wrapped body in a tomb and rolled the stone in its place. The events all speak for themselves. Fairness was not the point. What was fair or right, it did not matter. The blame, that was a trivial argument now. Jesus was dead and nothing spoken could bring him back. And nothing more emphatically than that of the tomb declared it so. Jesus had once walked freely through their villages, teaching and preaching all of them. He had walked with purpose through the courtyard and the stairs and the steps of the temple. He had been there. He read from the scrolls. He sat with so many of them in their homes, eating with them, walking the streets of Jerusalem and Nazareth and then through Samaria. He would even walked on the Sea of Galilee. But the tomb now sealed him. The tomb says... No more movement, no more interaction. That's what tombs do. They bind and they constrict. They speak of finality. They speak of conclusiveness and irrevocable locations. No one comes back from sealed tombs. No one comes in or out of sealed tombs. No one ever gets out of the tomb. Whatever questions might remain, the tomb was a closure in the most insipid way. And moving that stone the last few inches will now draw it all to a close. And I must say it again, the Lord was not only hung on the cross, but now he was buried in a tomb, a gifted tomb. He could have changed his mind if he wanted. He could have called 10,000 angels, 10,000 of 10,000 of angels to save him. But he chose to die as a ransom for the sins of all mankind. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders were foolish when they said 
He saved others himself. He cannot save. How foolish of them. They knew nothing of this Jesus of Nazareth. They were blind to his lordship. Of course he could have saved himself. In fact, the Lord said, no one can take my life. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to raise it up again. The spirit inside of this man called Jesus never lost control. Remember this, everyone. The spirit never loses control. The spirit always has authority. No matter what the age or crisis or condition, God's always in control. The power to move the nations is given to him. To change the seasons and the times and all the rest. The spirit of the Lord has the power and authority. He always has. He always will. And those two disciples, both men of means and honor, they've done the necessary work and now they will walk away having completed the task as best they could. They have buried the Lord. They have put him in a tomb. And like the rest of those who follow Jesus, there's nothing left. It's done. It's gone. And their hopes and their dreams, all of them have died the moment that Jesus hung his head. All of their ambitions and aspirations have been laid to waste, spilling on the ground with every drop of his precious life-giving blood. His senseless death stripped them of whatever expectations they might have had. And nothing spoke of it more loudly or clearly than that of the tomb. They knew where he was. He was in the tomb. He was in the grave. The whole group of them knew where Jesus was buried in. Nothing could be done about it. The only ones worried about the tomb, however, they were the religious people. They were the religious men. The Pharisees, now, they worried about it. The scribes and the religious order, they were concerned about this tomb. In fact, their whole focus was on the tomb. They were afraid that Jesus might get out. They didn't know how or when, but they, they were nervous that somehow Jesus might break out of the tomb. Can you imagine? They knew that he was dead, but they were concerned about the tomb. They were concerned about the whereabouts of Jesus. They needed to have confidence to know where he was and to keep him where he was. They, 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 they were so fretting and concerning, they were anxious about it. Too many things had happened. In fact, while Jesus was on the cross, many things had taken place and it disconcerted the Pharisees and the temple priests. Think of it now. None of them could explain the darkness for the span of three hours from noon until 3 p.m. Darkness, the Bible says, cover the land. The sign was in the sky. It was reminiscent to them. They knew this. It was reminiscent to them of the ninth plague that happened in Egypt. During the time of Moses, the ninth plague, right before the angel of death passed over the land. They'd all talked about the blood and the lamb and the tenth plague, but darkness was reminiscent of the ninth plague. The Pharisees had studied their own history. All of them knew that. They knew the progression. What was even worse was what happened in the temple. No one could explain it. But at the time of the death of Jesus, the Bible says that the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, exposing the holy of holies. The religious people, the religious men, they would have none of it. An open veil meant access, and they knew it. The Bible also says that an earthquake shook the ground and split the rocks before them. 
All of it was more than a little unsettling to them. The earth shaking, the sky bowing its head, the veil, their precious veil, torn from top to bottom, giving access and entry to everyone. And the sounds of its final breath weighed heavy on them. All of it was troubling enough, but then an attending centurion called out and said, truly this was the Son of God. No wonder why they were anxious for the tomb. The evidence was all around them, and yet they knew nothing of his power or his position. They did not know that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. None of them could comprehend this incarnate God, Emmanuel, God with us, robed in flesh, humanity hosting the omniscient. Read in your Bible, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus said, I, Jesus said it, I am the Alpha, and I am the Omega, I am the beginning. I am the ending. Jesus said, I am, I was, I will always be. And then the Lord caps off his self-declaration by saying that in fact, he is the almighty. The Pharisees couldn't wrap their minds around Mary's virgin birth or the Lord's dual nature. All of it confounded them. They didn't even want to think about him, his power to heal. They wanted to dismiss that. They always tried to dismiss that. His insight into the Torah, the knowledge of the prophets and the kings and the judges. They never knew anyone like him. And they never knew that they were even talking. They didn't know who they were talking to. They didn't even know they were talking to the author of the very book that they studied. But they did know, after all that had happened, they did know that they desperately needed him to stay in the tomb. The tomb was their comfort. The tomb was their answer. The tomb was their hope. For the religious men, the tomb was what they relished. If Jesus just stays put, they can just keep him bound in a fixed location everything's going to be fine bring all the visitors to the tomb welcome the people at the tomb the weeping crowds can gather no problem bring all your friends and neighbors to the tomb put flowers in front of the tomb they would have allowed mourners i'm sure of it even professional mourners which were prevalent in that day they could all come and weep over his sealed and undisturbed tomb but something jesus said started to haunt them. And the next day, following the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they, they, they rushed unto Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember that the deceiver, they're talking about Jesus, said that while he was alive, he said, after three days I'll rise again. So oh, this is a problem, Pilate. We, we can't have this now. So allow us to make sure that the tomb is undisturbed. Let us seal it. Watch this now. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he's risen from the dead. Even the religious men knew what they had done was horrible. Even they knew what they had done was tragic. They knew what they had done was wrong because they admitted it in the last portion of Matthew 27 and 64 they said so that the last error shall be worse than the first that means that we made a mistake at first we should never have done this at first but surely we can't let him get out now it was bad enough when he was walking around here if he ever gets out we're in big trouble 
If you ever get out of that tube, we are in big trouble. Our livelihoods, our programs, our ideas, it's going to be a wreck if he ever gets out of that tomb. So let's do something to keep him in the tomb. They knew what he had said. So whether moved by fear that Jesus could in fact rise from the grave as he said or, or maybe by the actions they talked about it, the Lord's disciples, they could ill afford to let Jesus out. The tomb was what they needed. It said it all. The concern uh, was both then and now all about the tomb. The tomb is defined as a confined, fixed place. I love the dictionary. I love the thesaurus. These are my favorite books outside of the Bible. And a couple Louis Lemores. Merriam-Webster says that a tomb could be a house, uh-oh, a chamber, a building, a cliff, or even some part in the ground. In fact, a tomb can be any place, any place, as long as it constricts, limits, and is sealed in some measure. <laughs> History tells us as much. In fact, the Bible even speaks of it also. Rachel and Jacob, they're on their way to Ephrath, which was also known as Bethlehem. The Bible says that she became very ill and she passed away. She died, and they had not made it to Ephrath. They had not made it to Bethlehem. And the Bible says that Jacob buried her in the way, along the way. There's no indication that the place where Jacob buried her was a graveyard. Rachel wasn't necessarily buried in a, in a graveyard. He just made a tomb along the way. He found a place, a location, he made a tomb, and that's where she was buried. Years prior, Abraham bought property to bury his wife Sarah. He purchased a place in Hebron, the cave of Machpelah. And he buried his wife there. And then, of course, over the years, other family members and other people were buried there. And Abraham is not the only one. Thousands have decided on some location. Any fixed location can bind. Any fixed location can restrict or limit. In fact, any place can be called a grave, a sepulcher, or a tomb. As long as it has the same qualities, nothing gets out, it's permanent, it's final, it's one location. That's why the Pharisees wanted to seal that tomb and put guards around it. Because the tomb was what they were hoping for. It was the answer to all the questions. It was going to preserve their religious order, their precedent, their ideas, their philosophies, and their power. Because they knew they had to have him there. If Jesus got out, if Jesus gets out, if he ever breaks out, if the tomb becomes a temporary tomb... Ah, if the tomb ever comes a temporary location, I want to tell you something that's happening today. And I rise on this Easter morning to say, Jesus is coming out. He's got out. He's out everywhere. I love it. I love what the Lord's doing. We've kept him in church buildings. We've bound him in cathedrals and basilicas and sanctuaries for as long as I can remember. But this Easter is different than all the rest. Jesus is rising. He's moving from house to house, from person to person, from place to place, and nothing can constrict him and nothing can bind him. Oh!
Now, let me tell you, I'll give you a little comfort here. Let me tell you about the church house, this building, the place where I'm standing. I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for corporate worship and corporate praises. I'm thankful that God allows us to have a building. But buildings didn't even come about for a couple hundred years after Pentecost. We're privileged. There's nothing wrong in having a church auditorium, a sanctuary, a cathedral, some place to worship. There's nothing wrong with it. And some, I think, are more thankful than others. But there is no doubt what the Lord is showing us in this season of time. This is the Lord's season. This is the Lord's time. He wants to be as much in your house as he is in this house. I hope you can hear me now. I'm not preaching against church buildings or organized religions. I'm preaching for a move of the Spirit of the Lord wherever you are and wherever you go. Jesus is coming out and we can ill afford to put our trust in a temporary location. Huh. You ought to just clap your hands wherever you are, at your table, your house, in your living room. I feel like clapping my hands today to the Lord. Oh, you are a great God. You are doing great things. You are trying to reach everybody today, Lord. Huh. Think of with me now. Think of this. Any place where you think God belongs uh, can be a tomb. If you say, well, that, that's where God is, I'll go there. I'll go to that place. There's people who say, I always find the Lord. There's a little tree in my backyard. I, I always go there because I can always find God. I'm going to tell you, you can find God walking down the hallway from bedroom to bedroom. He's not confined to the tree in the backyard. He's not confined to a revival. He's not bound up in a crusade. Come on. You don't have to go to a healing crusade to be healed. You can walk right out your front deck right now on your porch. You and go to your garage and say, Lord, would you heal my body? He does not exist in a location. He exists everywhere. He is omnipresent. He's the same God here as he is where you are. He's able to perform his mighty works wherever you are, driving, living, working every day. He's not content. Here, here pastor now, the Lord is not content to be visited on Sunday uh, and certainly, I hope you can see this, he's not content to be visited once a year. We've not been careful. In fact, I dare say that most have been careless because we've kept him in the building and we come to see him on Sundays. So maybe even many have waited to this day to pay their respects to the Lord. You don't have to wait for Easter to pay your respects to the Lord. He wants to have a relationship with you. But this Easter, Jesus is saying, I'm getting out of here and I'm going wherever you are. He's coming to your house. He wants to live in your life. He wants to change your home and your existence and your days and your nights. And those of us who believe in his resurrection, we must admit that not since he rose the first time from that tomb has the world witnessed so much fear and chaos and confusion but I feel led of the spirit to simply say he wants to fill you with his Holy Spirit he wants to live inside of you he's coming out Jesus is breaking out of every place that's bound him he's rewriting and resetting the rules that even the believers have placed on him 
I know I'm treading on dangerous ground. I know I'm treading on, on, on I'm, I'm killing sacred cows today. But I believe that the Lord's intent and in breaking out of every boundary and everything that religion has put on him, every minimal expectations our human thoughts have placed on him, I hope we can get back together soon. I'd love to see the believers. But I'm praying that there'd be a Monday morning and a Tuesday afternoon revival just like there was when we got in the building. I hope we're learning something that the Holy Ghost is trying to teach us. Here, Pastor, he's ready to visit you, to heal you, to restore you, to fill you with the baptism of his Holy Spirit. Wherever you are right now, I pray, God, don't let this place be the only altar, but when you break out of the tomb, your couch, your chair, your table, your, your wherever you are is an altar, so come to your altar. Uh, he's doing things uh, that most people have never seen. In fact, I believe he's doing something that has not been done since the morning they found the empty tomb and the stone was rolled away. The walls, the curtains, the things that have kept him away, they're gone. Jesus wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is his divine will, all to be saved. Those religious men in the Lord's day, they were afraid that Jesus would come out of the tomb. They were fearful, and they're still afraid. But I believe that he can be just as real and powerful wherever you are as he is in our designated houses of worship. Thank God for our houses of worship. We dedicate them. We, we reverence the Lord in those locations. But the Lord never intended to be sealed in a fixed location. The guards could not keep him there and the seal could not bind him there. It's Easter. I'm proclaiming that the tomb is a temporary tomb and Jesus is out. He's everywhere. Buildings cannot hold him. The Nominations cannot monopolize him. Governments cannot outlaw him. And kings cannot dethrone him. And I know that many are anxious to get back to the building. But maybe Jesus is trying to teach us how to worship him outside of a fixed location. Maybe Jesus is trying to teach us that he can heal you while you are driving down the road and while you are sitting in your home. He is beyond the tomb today. It's Easter and the Lord is out. It's a temporary place. I submit today that it's altar time right now in your home. I submit right now wherever you are, it's time to go to the altar. Now is the time. Today is the day. It's altar service time. If you want the baptism of the Holy Ghost, all you have to do is say, Lord, forgive me of all my sins. And when you get done with that, just say, Lord, I worship you. I believe you'll fill me with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. If you want to be healed, if you, you don't have to lift your hands, but if you'll lift your hands and say, Lord, I worship you. I believe you can heal me. Just put your hand on your own body and say right now, in Jesus' name, because the Lord is just as powerful where you are standing, where you are sitting, where you are kneeling as he ever has been. He's out of the tomb. He's in your homes. He's in your lives. He's in this world. Jesus broke out on Easter morning, 2020. There's a clear vision that the Lord has has been set free. Oh, we worship you now. Oh, oh, I pray it in Jesus' name. I believe it right now.
I know what Easter is. I, I know all the wonderful things that we do on Easter. And I, I hope the children have a lot of candy. I hope the people get a lot of things. I, I love all of that. I love the family coming together. But there's something greater than all of that. There's something that, 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 that all of that pales in comparison to the Lord making his way. He's going to get out of all of these places. And he wants to be there, here, every day. Every day. I'm praying for this. I hope you hear me. I'm praying for the day that our own homes and our own places of worship, work, wherever it's at, feels the same as the church house. I pray that our homes have the same anointing as any other location. I pray that the believers will stop chasing after something in some place and start chasing after the Lord wherever they are.